Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Tuesday topics. I'm Paul Edwards. Uh, we are we are doing Tuesday topics in a somewhat unorthodox way. While Jim is is sitting quietly in his home in Miami, Paul is currently driving north towards Jacksonville with his daughter and granddaughter to uh, to spend a quiet, uh, isolated Thanksgiving, which I'm very much looking forward to. But we'll, we'll see how the connection holds up as we are zooming northward on I-95. Uh, this evening, it gives me great pleasure to welcome someone uh, who I have known for, I guess, the last 20 years or so, if not longer. Um, he is someone who I would call a friend and someone who I think has a lot to tell us, uh, both on ACB radio and lots of questions that he can respond to as well. Uh, when we get to that point, um, to uh, with regard to some of the issues we'll be talking about for the first little while. And his name is Jim Crott. He lives in Miami now and also lives in Orlando, has two houses which he kind of uh, skis between, as it were. But it is my pleasure to welcome him. Jim, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Paul. Um, I dare correct you right in the beginning because I'm well, like that, you know. But yeah. uh, I would say we've probably known each other since at least 1990 and maybe before. That's so, you're, you're correct. You're um, correct. It, I, I just don't like to imagine that so much time has gone on, but you're right. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have Excellent. mentored and marveled at Paul uh, for all of those years. I remember the first time I saw him in the Commission uh, on Disability Issues uh, chairing those meetings, and then I saw him at ACB Resolutions meetings, and I'm going, who is this guy? Where does he get his brains and his talent? Uh, and then he calls me for an interview. We ought to be interviewing him, but uh, yeah. I'm pleased to be here tonight. Thank you. So you've had an interesting uh, and 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 a and a fairly eventful life. So let's start at the beginning. Were you born visually impaired? And talk, tell us something about your childhood. Sure. Uh, my twin sister and I were born uh, two and a half months premature in San Francisco, California, uh, in 1950. Uh, so you can do that math. I'm old. Yeah. Um, we were. Um, Placed in an incubator, the common cause of blindness in that generation of blind kids was uh, retinopathy of prematurity, then known as RLF. Um, we grew up in South San Francisco, and when I was six, uh, actually, yeah, just, just under six, almost six, uh, my parents moved the family from San Francisco, South San Francisco, down to the heart of the Silicon Valley, which wasn't the Silicon Valley then, um, to Los Altos, which is just south of Palo Alto, 
Uh, and they did this for the primary reason of enabling me to be able to attend a resource program um, for blind kids in the Campbell Union School District just north of San Jose, um, one of the first school districts in San Fran- in the, the California school system to launch a pioneering uh, resource program with um, blind kids being integrated into uh, fully into public school classrooms with uh, a resource or quote we called it a braille room where we could go to learn such things as reading and writing but for all of our other uh, ventures we were sent to our regular classroom to um, intermingle with and mix with and be educated with our sighted peers um, if we had stayed in South San Francisco I would have been educated in the San Mateo School District in a program that that was a resource program for blind kids but all of the blind kids were put in one room and educated together in that room and not intermixed and my uh, parents strongly believed that I needed to be uh, educated with my sighted peers and um, mainstreamed and so when mainstreaming wasn't even a word uh, I was mainstreamed. Uh, I did the regular things that kids do growing up. I was in scouting. Um, I took music lessons, uh, did horseback riding, um, took drama lessons, uh, public speaking lessons. Um, we were pretty driven as kids, much more so when I think back on it than I thought at the time. Had three sisters, uh, an older sister who was four years older than we were, uh, and then I have a younger sister who is six years younger than we are. Um, the uh, Campbell School District through uh, 11th grade provided me with uh, my educational opportunities. Uh, my school was about an hour to hour and 15 minute or longer bus ride from my house every day, so I learned what commuting was all about early. Um, but I was lucky because I always made friends with the bus driver and got to sit up on the front seat. Um, so it was much more comfortable <laughs> than being shoved in the back. Um, the um, did you feel ahead. that did you feel that that while you were in school, um, not having as much contact with blind kids was a disadvantage or an advantage? No, I I think. Um, I had a mix, and the reason I had a mix is the eight or ten of us blind students at the school did mix and intermingle uh, and socialize, so we had opportunities to be together, so I was with other blind kids to some degree, uh, and there were several blind adults that were in and out of my life. Mm -hmm. I don't think I really thought about it very much until I was older and thought a little bit about the whole role of mentoring and um, really um, am very grateful for the friends that I had that shared my visual disability so that um, we could learn from each other's experiences and benefit from each other's accomplishments and successes. 
one of the things that you've talked about with me is a summer camp experience that you had in high school. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? From the time I was seven uh, until uh, my junior year in high school, I spent two to three weeks every summer in the Napa Valley area uh, up in Napa at the Enchanted Hills Camp for the Blind. This camp was first developed starting in the early 1950s. So when I was going there in 1957, it was pretty rugged. It was an old stagecoach uh, stop and a spa stop and it was up in the redwoods and the and the bay trees and the eucalyptus trees. It was high high up in the mountain. Um, we washed our clothes, washed our hands, and bathed out on a platform in a big old army sink uh, every morning when it was about 55 degrees out uh-huh. and shivered. Um, our cabins didn't have screens. They had uh, burlap curtains that hung down to keep out the mosquitoes. Ha-ha. Uh, had a beautiful Olympic-sized pool that was probably built in the 40s, uh, maybe earlier. Uh, we had campfires. We had barn dances. We had uh, crafts, archery, bowling, all kinds of fun things. But it it was an incredibly unique opportunity for 50 or so blind kids to get together, many of them repeated year after year, so you became friendly with them. You were in cabins of seven or eight kids, so you got friendlier with that group. Um, You shared your meals with them and did all kinds of things, and it was a wonderful opportunity. I went back several years ago to explore the possibility of writing a history of that camp. I didn't uh, proceed with completing that history, and then unfortunately, the camp has now experienced a horrible uh, forest fire, and the lower half of the camp was totally destroyed, including our beautiful outdoor chapel. That I don't know if they can ever really replace that, um, but it was a wonderful opportunity growing up. It was mixed with our family vacations, which were camping at state parks and national parks. Um, uh, throughout the state, of, mostly throughout the state of California, uh, and my between my eighth grade and my freshman year of high school, uh, I was one of 19 uh, blind students that was picked from all over the country to attend a nine-week program at Camp Wapanopki in Hardwick, Vermont. We studied uh, accelerated pre-college courses in the morning, got three credits for those courses, mm-hmm. and did outdoor activities, uh, social uh, experiences, took a three-day canoe trip up into Canada, climbed Mount Mansfield on a day trip, um, went to Summerstock Theater, went to some uh, symphony concerts at the Marlboro Music Festival, and at Dartmouth. Uh, did all kinds of wonderful things. Went to the World's Fair in New York for three days. Nice. Um, in 1964, it was a great opportunity and a wonderful experience. Of course, I dealt with homesickness like any uh, 13 or 14-year-old kid, but I survived and made it the whole way. And uh, look back on it, and it was just an absolutely incredible experience. And some of my friends and I have reunited through ACB 
over mm-hmm. the years, which has been nice. I don't think blind kids these days get get to experience the same kind of socialization as was typical when we were growing up. Do you agree? I would agree. Um, you know, there was a camp for the blind in Florida, and their concentration on young people was very limited. Uh, that was a lion's camp, and that yep. camp has closed. Um, yes. And Camp Wapkanaki has closed. Um, camp Bloomfield and, 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 in, in Southern California and, also burned down, so I don't know if they've reopened. And Shannon Hills is still going. Efforts, efforts to revive the Florida camp didn't work either. Um, because I've, I've been working on those for five years or so before. So you finish high school and you decide to go to college to study what? Well, um, whoops, did we lose you? Oh, I lost you. I don't, I finished high school and what? Oh, sorry. And, and went to college to study what? <laughs> uh, well, let me let me work there by telling you that first, I, I was fortunate my senior year of high school to have the resource program moved from the school that it was in to a school which would have added a significant amount of driving time to get to. Uh, I didn't want to change schools in my senior year anyway, but my mother. And father decided if I was going to change schools, they were going to move me to my neighborhood high school. And so it gave me the opportunity to become the only blind student in a high school of 2,000 kids and learn what it was like to spend for myself, uh, to become uh, in charge of making things work. Um, At that point, um, uh, we accepted a scholarship and attended Harvard College, which I ultimately developed a concentration in American studies. Um, I studied American literature, Western literature, uh, American government, and American history courses Mm -hmm. to make an American uh, sociological and political and colonizational uh, concentration. Um, It was really a a wonderful study project for me. It gave me the opportunity to study that much of American history, which I love. I could go back and do American history now for another five years and still not begin to know everything there is to know. It's fascinating to me. Yep. So Um, you ended up with a four-year degree from... I got a four-year... Uh, cum laude and general studies degree from Harvard College. Uh-huh. Graduated from Harvard in 1972. Did it as a married student. Uh, my wife and I were married the day that we left for Harvard in 1968. Um, we were on a four-year honeymoon, except we weren't satisfied with a four-year honeymoon. While well, we had planned to return to California for law school, uh, and hopefully for uh, voc- occupational opportunities, uh, I got accepted into Harvard Law School and got an appropriate uh, scholarship availability. Never expected to have that opportunity and was convinced to 
stay at Harvard Law School, which was probably from a career perspective um, the best decision of my life. Uh, stayed there for the next three years. My wife was prodding and pushing all of the way. Uh, law school was hard for me. It was definitely a challenge. Um, it was intellectually challenging. I worked 17, 18, 19 hours a day trying to keep up. Uh, I'm not sure I did it as well as I could have. I got through. I passed my courses. I graduated on time in three years, but it was a lot of work. Um, I will say that law school was probably where, for the first time, um, I really learned the meaning of discrimination uh, as I started looking for employment and found out that, hey, I was a blind guy, and hey, I was going to be treated a little bit differently than uh, I thought I should be or expected to be. Uh, I had been um, very fortunate in my life's opportunities and achieving my goals up until the time I started looking for work. Uh, had was able to put together an employment opportunity for my first summer uh, after law school, uh, after my first year of law school, um, thanks to the help of a very caring um, Baptist minister uh, that I had worked with the summer before opening a senior citizen center for elderly people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, did a law project for legal services the second summer, I was also able to put together employment thanks to a very kind, um, visually impaired attorney who worked for the state capitol out in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was not able to find employment in California. I was not able to find employment in Chicago and Columbus and Cleveland and New York City and Arizona and Atlanta. Um, I persevered. Uh, my colleagues, most of them had work. By the time the Christmas break came up, I was still interviewing in May. Um, lo and behold, I found a job and got an offer in early May, uh, which, as it ended up, uh, being my, uh, my career and a wonderful opportunity, which we will get into later. Now, in terms of in terms of technology in law school, this was really before the days of braille displays. Yes, yes, there were no braille displays. Uh, there were no braille textbooks. Uh, there was RFB and D. There was the Catholic Guild for the Blind, which is now the Carroll Center, which provided volunteer readers, uh, usually law professors, uh, spouses, or partners. There were, was my wife, who did a tremendous amount of my reading and some of my note-taking. There was a Sony tape recorder that went with me to there lectures. There was. Yep. Went with me to lectures and raised lots of eyebrows from complaining law professors who didn't like it one bit. Um, yeah, we, but the we, problem we with a... having to tape lectures was then you had to go home and spend the same amount of time to listen to them all over again right. and take notes on them. I am a very devout Braille reader. I'm very committed to Braille. I never could have done it without Braille. Um, So I had to go home and and take Braille notes on all those classes, and that became an extremely tedious task. And as the years passed, uh, I 
found I was looking for law students to borrow notes from and things like that to make it a little easier. Um, but uh, I could never have made it without Braille. I could never have made it without my wife, and I could never have made it without RFB and D or the wonderful um, volunteer ladies and most so, ladies from the Carroll Center. RF, RFB and D for younger folks is now learning out. Learning out. And it, and it stands for uh, Recordings for the Blind and Dyslexic, of all things. At, at that point, it was only Recordings for the Blind, actually. It was, and, and, and a much better organization it was then, but I didn't say that. Um, you know, I think it, it's definitely lost its focus working with blind folks, which is a shame. Um, anyway, uh, Harvard Law. Uh, got good grades. Uh, virtually everybody else who's graduated from from Harvard Law has already got six figures in the bank. And Mr. Crott is sitting there looking for a job in spite of the fact that his grades are pretty fair. I mean, you weren't at the bottom of your class. Mr. My Crott. grades were fair. My grades were above average. My grades yeah. were stellar. Yeah. I wasn't a law review performer. Uh, to be sure, yep. uh, I worked hard. I got my my uh, the <laughs> assistant county attorney that hired me and told the story for years that he thought my transcript was better than his. I'm not sure that it was. Um, I didn't get where I got on the basis of my academic. Um, right. What's the word surplus? So, uh, but you ended up going to work in 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 an odd place that we both had something to do with, known as Miami, Florida. Um, and did you envisage your practicing uh, or practicing the kind of law that you ended up practicing? Um, not at all. Um, yeah. I, I took a local government law course my senior year of my third year of law school uh, with a professor, Oldman, who was not the normal uh, professor that taught that course. That professor was on leave. And I liked the course. We, we, we learned a lot. We actually studied about the metropolitan form of government in Miami-Dade, mm -hmm. and it was a challenge and an interest. Um, but I never thought of myself as a government lawyer or as a local government lawyer at all. Even when I worked for the Department of Water Resources in California, I didn't really picture myself going there and becoming um, bureaucratic in, in demeanor. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the interesting thing about Miami was uh, my grandmother lived here the last 30 years of her life. We had come down and visited her a couple of times, and I found Miami very appealing. I had interviewed several Florida law firms because I thought it would be mm -hmm. an interesting place to come to. Um, the spring semester was in full force, and I was looking through um, legal notices for help, and I see this Dade County Attorney's Office posting. And I looked at it, and it was very interesting. I didn't know that much about it, but I said, I'm going to send them a resume. So I sent them a resume, and um, we started having dialogue, and the next thing I get was, well, we'd really like to meet you and interview you, and uh, we'd like you, to, can you come to Florida over spring break and interview us? 
this was an office of 19 lawyers. Mm-hmm. And you guys have to understand, when I say we went through college and law school on a, on a, a hook and a prayer, <laughs> uh, we didn't have extra dollars. And paying to fly to Miami for a job interview was not something we could easily do. But there was enough excitement and possibility stretched out there that we decided I would take the chance and come to Miami for the interview. So I bought my ticket, and I'm sitting in an office I had at the college studying, and I get a phone call about a week before I was supposed to come, and the then assistant county attorney in charge of hiring said, well, I called to tell you not to come to um, Miami. Um, we no longer have an opening, and oh, therefore we here. don't need you. And I said, well, that's kind of difficult. I already bought my ticket, and I'm really sorry to hear that. And Well, what happened? And he said, well, you know, it is a government office, and politics are politics, and Unfortunately, political pressure was applied, and we were forced to hire a young minority um, female lawyer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that ended that. So I went back to studying and was pretty crestfallen and studying for exams. And lo and behold, I get a phone call. The county attorney is in western Massachusetts and would like to come and interview you. At Harvard, and I said, "Well, I said first, I'm in the middle of preparing for exams, and I said, second of all, why would he interview me? You said there was no longer an opening. Well, he looked at your resume, and he's in Western Mass for his summer home, and he really would like to come visit you on his way back to Florida." I said, "Okay." This gentleman is the most delightful person I have ever met. He was a wonderful human being. May he rest in peace. He came. We talked for two hours. He left to catch his plane. He called me up. We talked for another hour. And it was a wonderful interview. I couldn't have asked for things to have been any better. Well, you have to understand, by this point, I'd had 150 interviews probably. I was tired. I was weary. The next day, the first assistant called me up and um, said, well, Stuart's really enthused about you. He's very excited. He'd like, uh, I I would like to ask you some questions. And he starts asking me the same questions that Stuart had asked me. And I Mm -hmm. said, you know, I'd love to spend another hour and a half with you answering these questions. But I'm in the middle of exams. I have to pass these exams because between you and me, I don't have a job. And it's imperative that I graduate so that I can get a job. So if you want to ask me the questions that Stuart asked me, then I suggest you sit down with Stuart and go over my answers. Pretty brazen, (laughs) stupid (laughs) thing to do. (laughs) Whatever, uh, it worked. Two days later, they called me up with an offer, um, and uh, the rest is history. So my wife and I agreed to come to South Florida. We thought for two or three years. We thought we would come down here. We would get experience. 
uh, it would then be easier to look for another job. We'd go on to California, which is what we really planned on doing, going back to California. And it would be a good training ground. By the time four years was up, our son was born, and I was growing more and more in love with my legal opportunities here in South Florida Uh and the incredible practice that I had been made a part of that was one of the best, quote, law firms in southeastern United States and had an incredible reputation, all of which I stumbled into quite blindly. So four years became six years, became longer, and ultimately my wife and I agreed that we would stay here for my career uh, and that when I retired, uh, she could pick wherever it was we would retire. Um, So a year before our retirement, um, I asked her where she wanted to go, and she says, well... The kids are both in the Orlando area. Let's buy a home in the Orlando area. I said, that's fine. Let's get this house on the market. My wife says, no, we're not selling this house. We're going to have a second house. (laughs) So that's how I have a home in Miami and a home in Winter Garden, Florida. Well, excellent. So so let's talk a little bit about your career because – you ended up specializing in tax law, and that seems an odd thing for a blind person to specialize in, yes? Especially when I had no finance experience. I took an accounting course in law school, but I didn't take any other financial courses. I didn't know what ad valorem tax was, which is a tax on the value of your Mm -hmm. real estate or property, value-based tax. Didn't know what it was, and... There was a very kind gentleman who is one of my dearest friends, who actually is the son-in-law of the attorney that hired me. Um, And he, I think, probably encouraged the office to move me into his area so I could grow and develop. It was more of an intellectual practice. I had done some personal injury work. I'd worked with the housing agency. I'd work with the county hospital. Um, none of these things were bad, but they just weren't exciting fits. And I got into ad valorem tax, and the first case I had was the a local charitable uh, uh, nursing home for the aged had filed their exemption application two days after the statutory deadline, and. Uh, I was defending the right correctness of taking away their tax exemption for the year on a multi-million dollar Mm -hmm. property. So I went into court, and I was a pretty young and naive lawyer, and the attorney on the other side was a very, very prominent, one of the board members for this organization, and he comes up to me and he says, what are you, an anti-Semite? I said, no. And I'm just doing my job. So I went in front of the judge, and the judge was a very religious judge. And he says, well, he says, I know the statute says failure to file an application for exemption shall constitute a waiver, but there's no way in heck I'm going to take away these people's exemption. And he ruled against me. He um, 
denied my motion for summary judgment. And at that point, I went to the county attorney and convinced them that I should appeal the denial of a motion for summary judgment. Not an appealable motion, but we appealed it. I get up to the third district, and the first question out of the judge's mouth was, well, counsel, how many days late were they? It didn't phase me. I, st- I stuck to my guns, and lo and behold, I became an ad valorem tax attorney with that as my first win. Um, yep. It was great. I had some wonderful mentors, some wonderful uh, people in the property appraiser's office and collector's office that I worked with that were great trainers and teachers. Um, they certainly encouraged me. Uh, I was able to grow. Uh, I started out as the second person in the section, soon there were three, uh, then there was four, uh, then the head of the section went over to zoning and it became me. And all of a sudden I'm doing administrative work. And when I left the county attorney's office 37 years after I arrived, I was supervising nine lawyers there, doing tax and work, you, bond work, you, bankruptcy work, and everything. Yep. You gradually learned to, to, to incorporate technology into what you did. Would you say that by the time it was over, you could have done the job you, you had to do without pretty substantial technology? No. I became very committed to technology midway through my career. The county was very generous in terms of their willingness to accommodate me, but they weren't overly generous in terms of their willingness to spend bucks on blindness technology. Yeah, exactly. I tried to convince them I needed a Versa Braille. Uh, first, mm-hmm. I tried to convince the state that I, Division of Blind Services that I needed a Versa Braille. This is like a year and a half or two years out of law school. Uh, we didn't have the money to buy Versa Brailles. Uh, state said, nope, you're employed, we're not interested. Um, county wasn't particularly interested. I probably didn't plead it right. I didn't really want to lose salary for the cost of right. equipment. Um, but ultimately, when they made the plunge, they made the plunge for technology all the way, and they were extremely generous and supportive. We put a client uh, attorney proposal together where my clients all kicked in a portion of the cost, and the county attorney's office kicked in a portion of the cost, and everybody went together, and then when I did another significant upgrade seven or eight years down the road, Mm -hmm. uh, I kicked in some of my reader service and backed off of that a little bit. So uh, it all worked out. So I was using a fair amount of technology by the time I retired uh, and loved it. Uh, But again, it was all, it was mostly tied to Braille. I had a a Braille display. I had a a very high speed Braille embosser. Um, and um, a braille note taker and uh, couldn't have done the job without them. And I marvel at my colleagues out there. I had a a friend who worked for a big law firm down here who never learned to stitch a braille, had a brilliant mind, and he could listen to something once, and that was it. My mind was never that way. So when did you get involved with ACB? Well, I didn't pull up my resume um, to give you exact dates, but let me just say that in 
1976, Durwood McDaniel came to Florida, and it could have been 77, uh-huh. to prepare for the convention at Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. And we had dinner, and he convinced me to come to the American Blind Lawyers Association meeting there. And once I went to that meeting and got the opportunity to spend time with and share experiences and war stories and techniques with other blind lawyers, I knew that it was absolutely something that was critically important to me as I developed my career. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hence, uh, I attended the American Blind Lawyers Association meetings and some of ACB meetings from uh, 1977 on. Um, I think uh, at the urging of Paul, uh, probably around 2000, um, maybe a little before, I uh, eventually became a board member of the Braille Revival League uh, and at later a, a contributor and board member of the Library Users of America. Yes. Um, my career and the political nature of my job did limit my abilities to participate in meaningful governmental advocacy work. Um, The county attorney's office was very generous in encouraging us to do outside things, but they did not want us crossing paths with legislators that we might be in front of arguing about a piece of tax Mm -hmm. legislation or county commissioners that we might be representing the property and pressure in front of. They were very strict about that. So my early years commitment to ACB and FCB were extremely limited. Uh, I did hold uh, some leadership positions in FCB um, in the early 2000s, um, but I don't think my real advocacy work for FCB and ACB took off until uh, I retired in 2012, with one exception. And that one exception? (laughs) Uh, Well, (laughs) we knew we were going to get there. In 2000, the supervisor of elections from Miami-Dade County walked into my office and said, would you come and vote in the government center uh, polling place? Um, I have some of my best trained poll workers there, and I want to see how it works out with you getting assistance and having them help you mark your ballot. Um, Well, up until this point, my wife and I always voted together, and um, she would mark my ballot and That was just the way it was done. Well, I arrive at 7 o'clock on Election Day. The huge cavernous lobby of the Government Center building is filled with several hundred co-workers and colleagues that were voting there. And I wait in line for a good 35 or 40 minutes, and I get up to the table, and I sign in, and somebody helps me sign the book and do all the things, and I said, I'm going to need someone to help me vote. 
And they said, well, we'll call someone. And I said, well, aren't I entitled to uh, a second person? And they said, yeah, he'll get you the, the second person. So this gentleman comes over, man, kind of a scruffy guy, and he escorts me to the voting booth and starts to read me the ballot. And I said, wait a minute. I said, under Florida law, I'm entitled to a second poll worker to verify the marking of the ballot. At this point, he says, what? And I said, yeah, I'm entitled to have a second person. This gentleman turns around and screams out across this entire sea of people, he doesn't trust me, he wants a second witness. (laughs) I would like to have crawled underneath the voting booth and pretended I wasn't there. But it spurred me on to become committed to fight for a change. Um, I went with um, Paul's late wife, Gail, to a meeting, the governor's task force meeting in Fort Lauderdale, uh, probably in February after the election. Um, and that was the hanging Chad. It was election, so it was infamous. And um, I spoke. Uh, Gail spoke. Uh, we took another gentleman with us who was very articulate and well spoken. And I was energized. I wrote a letter to Governor Bush. I wanted a change. Um, we were entitled under the Constitution to. Uh, protection to the right to independently cast uh, a ballot in secret, and that clearly wasn't what was being provided. Um, I went to Tallahassee and met with the Division of Blind Services director at the um, urging and, and work of the then president of Florida Council of the Blind, Robert Miller, and he arranged a meeting with the DBS director and ultimately the Secretary of State. Um, a lady came over from Jacksonville, one of our members, and the four of us went to that meeting with the Secretary of State and convinced her that she needed to create a disability task force to look at voting practices and procedures uh, with respect to blind and other disabled voters. Uh, I was asked to serve on that um, task force, not as FCB's representative because Debbie Grubb did that. I was asked to represent, I don't know if it was AAPD or NOD, um, National Organization on Disabilities. Uh, We met for over a year. Uh, we developed a very lengthy report. Um, there were some complications with that, um, but we ultimately got that done. Uh, HAVA was then passed. Uh, I became part of the HAVA working group that was formulated in Florida. And, and, and HAVA, HAVA, just for our acronym, uh, our acronym Help America Vote. Is, correct, Help America Vote Act. So, yeah. Uh, so I then um, 
became an unpaid consultant at my office uh, office's agreement to the Division of Elections of the Department of State uh, to review and develop spec- specs for certification of the first accessible voting machine in Florida. Flew to Omaha uh, to spend three or four days evaluating the ES&S machine and developing the Department of uh, Election rule that uh, involved and led to the certification of that machine. And it was truly the beginning of my life as an advocate. Um, and we were so proud of ourselves here in Florida. All of us were because essentially by 2004, in spite of the hanging chat election, every single county in this state um, had accessible voting machines where, where blind people could truly vote privately and independently. It was, it was pretty amazing. It was, and it didn't just happen. It took a lot of work nope. and a, a lot of involvement of a lot of people, and it, it was a great accomplishment, and we were pioneers, and uh, we were crushed when uh, a year or two after uh, these voting machines that were certified were deemed illegal in the state of Florida and ruled unusable by all voters except blind voters in the state because they had security uh, risk factors. We have to be fair and say it was disabled voters. It wasn't just blind voters. So, this is correct. Um, and <clears throat> and and so essentially, we were we were not allowed, but only able to vote on machines that had been declared unlawful for anybody else to use. So, it was exciting. But in between, then, um, I got an opportunity to see a side of you that. Um, that probably not a lot of folks had seen. Uh, my wife, Gail, passed away in 2005, and both Jim and Pat were there when my wife died uh, in the hospital. Jim came back to my house with me, spent the next couple of days, and I'm not sure I would have gotten through um, all that I had to um, had it not been for for both Jim and Pat's help. So... If I haven't, if I hadn't, if I haven't said it enough before, Mr. Crod, thank you so much for being a good friend. Well, um, it's nothing you do in life to be thanked for. I appreciate it and accept it, and you have thanked me. But it's a, it's an interesting part of my life because um, I have given a significant amount of energy to um, to trying to help people that are going through. Uh, difficult times. I spent months um, at a hospital bedside um, visiting a, a, a blind gentleman who had lost his kidneys and underwent a kidney transplant and um, ultimately um, died. I spent many weeks, evenings after work at the side of a gentleman who had a heart transplant. Um, it's always not been something that I can attribute to uh, anything in my childhood, um, but something that I have felt very strongly about, and that was trying to be there to help someone that was in a less fortunate situation than I am. Right now my wife and I are helping uh, a family that is... um, from one of the islands that is having a very, very hard 
challenging time. And, um, you know, we've been helping them with food and other help that we can give. And it's just, it's nothing that I think about. Um, it's just something that you sort of do. Um, I mean, Gail was so fast. It, yes. it, it happened like that. It and did. All of a sudden, I was at the. I was in the office trying to get county papers finalized and taken care of before I left the office, so that her wishes would be respected if she did pass away. And within less than twelve hours of that, she did pass away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you do those things because they're the right things to do. Um, but it kind of takes me, in a way, it's a little bit connected to one of the things that I wrote recently about the award that I received from the Florida Bar, and that is the, the, the thing that I learned in Avia and that I value so much about ACV and Avia is the opportunities for mentoring. Avia, the, the Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys, what replaced uh, Abla. Abla. Yeah. Um, the opportunity for mentoring. Um, I have all of my professional career tried to reach back to law students, to young uh, lawyers that went through some of the thing, same things that I went through. I didn't have that when I was in college and when I was in law school looking for work. And I always felt like because I didn't have it, I wanted to be available to help other people uh, have that if it could be of any benefit to them. Um, and that's one of the, the biggest gifts that I've gotten from my overall con commitment to the, the lawyers group and my involvement with ACB. Yeah. Um, and and mentoring is something that I think you you take very seriously and 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 spend quite a lot of time doing. I have. Um, I'll never forget. I, I got a call from this young lawyer I was talking about with a big law firm in Miami, and he was a junior or senior at. Um, I think he transferred back to. Uh, Florida, University of Florida, is that in Tampa? Not Gainesville, Tampa. What's that one? West Florida. University of South Florida. South Florida, yep. yeah. Yeah. And um, he wanted to apply to Harvard, and I took it upon myself to encourage him to strongly talk with him about his strengths and weaknesses, even offered to put myself out there to go with him and his mother to meet the people at Harvard to see if I could move mm -hmm. his, uh, his practice along. Uh, he went to University of Miami instead of Harvard. He was only waitlisted at Harvard, and he didn't want to wait. And he did far better at UM where he had family support. Right. Um, but uh, and things are often just meant to happen for the right reason. Uh, and... I was able to be at the right place at the right time and and make a connection for him for summer employment uh, with a law firm in Miami that ultimately was his career. And yep. It was his career not because I made that connection, but because he got in there and did one hell of a job. 
All right, so I'm going to ask one last question on voting, and then we're going to open it up and see what other people might want to say. So the question that I, that I want to ask has to do with the recent settlement in Florida. Um, for those, uh, for those who, who don't pay huge attention to what goes on in other states in Florida, we had a situation where despite all that we could do, um, uh, the, the, the Secretary of State and the Department of Elections uh, weren't acting in an appropriate way to certify an accessible mail ballot. And eventually we felt the need to go to court, ended up coming out of that court settlement with what, what we think was actually a, a, a pretty good opportunity to move ahead in that a pilot project was set up that would actually deal with five counties who would be uh, operating uh, with the accessible mail ballot. And then after that, there would be an, an opportunity for a task force to get together and take a look at what we'd accomplished. Um, did, did, did that system work well, Jim? And what do you see the future? Um, I see the, f I, I, I see the system as potentially, um, being groundbreakingly successful. Mm -hmm. um, how did it work? Um, the county's participation in the project were able to generate, unfortunately, very few participants that actually voted by mail. I think this is going to make it very difficult when this task force convenes but I also think that they have a legal requirement and a requirement other, under the settlement for the other 62 counties to go forward irrespective of the number of voters that we were able to marshal uh, into using vote by mail. Um, time was short. Development of practices and procedures was short. It convinced me that we need electronic ballot return, which is not something that Florida wants to hear or consider, but without it, we really don't have complete accessible vote by mail. And if, if at all possible, uh, if other voting vendors want to come and join the marketplace, and just like we have several voting machine uh, options in Florida, we can have more than one vote-by-mail system, but right now, the system that came to Florida and got certified, mm -hmm. Democracy Live worked well um, to the extent that we were able to do electronic ballot uh, delivery. It was fabulous. It was very easy to use, but the electronic ballot return option needs to become a reality as it did in Massachusetts. Um, and I think it is in Maryland and Virginia as well, or one of those two. One of them. I think, I think yeah. it's in two, two or three states yeah. um, that, that it's successful. And it's going to, to be a very challenging battle to get it, and I hope that this task force is strong enough to be able to push for it, um, because without it, we're never going to get the kind of usage that we need. Now, I, I, I lied. Think that because, uh, because I'm going to ask you another question about, about this. 
given the fact that Florida passed a law in 2007 that essentially said, thou shalt not, thou shalt not vote in any other way, um, but, but in a way that leaves an absolutely clear and unequivocal paper trail, um, is, it, is it going to be easy to persuade Florida to, to, to turn away from that for the sake of uh, accessible mail balloting, do you think? No. Yeah. No. I don't uh, but I don't think that's the problem with accessible uh, return balloting. I think the real problem are, unfortunately, the, the same people that destroyed uh, yes. the original voting equipment Correct. are out to destroy ballot return, yeah. electronic ballot return. Sure, and 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 these are folks who have, what what are often unreasoned um, security issues, which are unfounded and which really don't operate. Yeah, I I would agree with that, Mr. Rick. Do we have any hands? It's Deborah. Hello, Deborah. Hello, Hi, Deborah. Hello. You know, I just have to say this. I just love you guys. You're both. We love you too. You know, I was thinking the whole time you were talking, you know, there are a lot of blind people who are successful, but there are not so many blind people who are successful, who are, uh, who are just so, so kind. And you're both so kind. Thank you, Miss Sherbrooke. It's really moving. So um, I wanted to say a couple things, and then I have two questions for Jim. Um, so the first thing that I wanted to say is I thought I knew a lot about you, and I do, but I did not know you were from California. And about five years ago, I had the opportunity to um, to speak at Enchanted Hills. I never got to go to camp when I was a kid, but I they do a providers weekend there for um, rehab teachers and O&M people every year. And they invited me to speak and I fell in love with that camp. So while you were talking about it, I just thought, I am so jealous. I am so jealous. It must've been so wonderful to be there as a child. So anyway, that's just very cool. And now it fits because all the, all, you know, all the blind people who come out of California are so amazing. <laughs> so just fits that's where it's from. I'll take that as a compliment too. I was born in San Francisco as well, five years oh before. Oh my Jim. gosh. Oh, that, yep. It just fits. It just fits. Perfect. So I, but I have two questions. Uh, the first one's serious and the second one's kind of silly, but important. So the, the serious one is, one of the big philosophical questions that all of us who have been fortunate enough to be employed talk about that doesn't seem to be solved one way or the other for the 40 years that I have known to think about it and talk about it is the old <clears throat> to disclose or not to disclose. And I was listening for a clue when you were talking about your interview and the person coming to choose this, but you never really tipped your hand there. So did they know that you were blind before they interviewed you? Um, yes. Um, I thought I was creative in what I did. Um, <clears throat> with my resume, 
um, I included three letters of recommendation. And I asked the writers of those letters of recommendation to identify my disability and how it affected or didn't affect my job performance uh, with or other performance with those individuals. So I didn't put it on the face of my resume. I dealt with it behind the scenes. So if, in fact, uh, they dealt with my, read my materials, they knew. Now, there are some who don't really read those materials in advance. Um, my daughter tells me I should quit telling this story because it's whining. But um, <laughs> I uh, remember particularly a lawyer in... Um, Colorado, and I was interviewing with Harvard, and the policy at the law school was you could knock on the door when your appointment time arrived, or you could wait, and I didn't have anything to do that morning, so I waited, and about 40 minutes or 30 minutes later, I finally said, I've waited long enough, and I knocked, and the guy comes flying to the door, and he's absolutely livid that I'm late. And I said, I'm not late. I said, you know, I've been here the whole time. The policy at Harvard is you can either knock or wait, and I chose to wait. So he sends me back out and finishes up his interview, and he calls me in to sit down. And I sit down, and he's talking to me, and about three or four minutes into the interview, he reaches over, he puts his hand on my, my leg, and he says, oh, my gosh, son, I'm so sorry. I should have realized, of course, you can't tell time, so how did you know how late I was? <laughs> the appropriate reaction at that point would have been to walk out of the interview, but I think I stayed there and tried to explain my life away for the next 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, All right, Ms. So Deborah, your silly this, question. This, my, well, my silly question is... When I read Paul's description of the conversation this evening, I thought for sure that music boxes were on his <laughs> list of things to know about. So could you tell us a little bit about your music box um, endeavors? I, I would absolutely love to tell you about my passion <laughs> and adventure. Okay. Um, this goes back to when we were in law school and we became friendly with an antiques dealer on Brattle Street, and we walked by his store one day, and he had a disc music box playing in his store, and I was infatuated with it. I absolutely loved it. I went in there, and I said, now, how much do you want for this music box? And he said, $1,350. $1,350 was a year's rent. So it wasn't yeah. going to happen. <laughs> Fast forward uh, to probably about 2000 and 2004, uh, and a, a auction house opened up in Miami that came down from well, the Washington, D.C. area, and we decided it would be fun to go look at what they had to sell. Had a beautiful music box there, another disc music box. So we spent the next week evenings in the library looking into what these music boxes were and what this brand was and 
all about them and went back and it came up for bid and it it didn't sell and I'd been to a lecture Pat and I had been to a lecture uh, and they had talked about pre uh, minimum bids and that you can bid under a minimum if it doesn't sell and what the procedure was so I went home and uh, sent a letter and lo and behold never heard a word from the auction house called them up and they said oh we sent that music box back to the jeweler in Miami Beach that it came from we never saw your letter blah 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 just so happened on a Saturday afternoon we go over to the jewelry store and there's the music box sitting on the counter and the guy says well I'm so angry with that auction house and he went on and on and on and he had made arrangements to sell it and it was being shipped on Monday so that ended that music box when I retired in 2012 I inherited a little bit of money from actually one of my readers at Harvard and I decided I was going to do something very special with it and buy my first and or second music box. So I ended up buying a large Regina Changer music box, which has 12 27-inch metal discs like records that plays um, these discs. Bought that out in Menlo Park, California, and then bought an 18-and-a-half-inch disc music box in Chicago, outside of Chicago, so I had one for each of my houses. Well, while I was in Chicago, of course, I found two more music boxes I wanted and went back and forth with the first guy. We were a couple hundred dollars apart. Then I went back and forth with another guy on a bigger, more expensive one and ended up buying that one. And the music box hobby started to grow had to find a restorer to do restoration work, had to find cabinet restorers to do cabinet restoration work. I, my oldest music box now dates to 1810. Uh, I have 46 music boxes in my collection. Just tried to buy one in um, Bertoia, New, well, New Jersey, uh, two weeks ago that I wasn't the successful bidder on. But I've absolutely become um, very passionate about music box collecting. I have cylinder boxes. I have disc boxes. Uh, and one of my nice feats, there are a few, um, is four years ago the Automatic Musical Instrument Collectors Association published a disc, a music box encyclopedia on disc music boxes and I started pleading for an accessible version of that encyclopedia the uh, guy who was putting it all together not the author uh, as a what's the word um, a librarian no he was like a collaborator um, he had That's all the files. witness he had all the files on Word, and I said, give me the Word files, please. Let me look at them. Well, I couldn't shake it loose. 
bought five copies of this encyclopedia, 70 bucks a copy for some of my friends, and took two to England, and still couldn't convince them they needed to give me PDF files of it. And I've been working for five years on this, or four years, and finally, two weeks ago, um, the president of Amica's, the same guy, actually, the collaborator, sent me a letter that a compact flash drive was in the mail to me with the files. But more importantly, he said I would be hearing from the first vice president, and the first vice president will be in conversation with the regional librarian, Kim Charleston, to see what we can do about getting this material distributed to anybody that wants to read it. Fantastic. So, yeah. yeah. So, so All Jim, stories don't I guess have happy you, endings. So you've spent yep. a little bit more than $1,350 on your collection? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have bought that. I, I, I don't even know what manufacturer or year it was, but uh, wow. actually, think, music boxes are not I think we could probably a add investment. a zero to that, and it would still be more. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. first music box is more than that. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's great. Thank it's, you. It's a wonderful hobby. It's, it's not an inexpensive hobby, um, but it's been a lot of fun and a lot of challenge. I it's, have more music boxes it's amazing in the repair to go to Jim's shop. House. Do you have, it's amazing have a, to go to Jim's house, though. Yeah. And see these large, these large pieces of furniture. Because I kid you not, folks, some of his, some of his music boxes are are pieces of furniture that are that are four feet off the ground and and three feet in one direction and two feet in another so when you and talk about are, cabinet not, restoration they are not are real tiny cabinets. little music boxes that you that you want plays um, the, the two mock like music boxes star. your 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 connection your oh, quality of your is bad paul i don't know you can do anything about yeah. it here um the Mr. two music boxes thank you so much what was that? Deborah? Oh. No, it wasn't I. It was two not I. The music boxes that I bought in Labor Day uh, are Regina music boxes that weigh about 150 pounds each. They're tabletop music boxes, and I'm oh now gosh. waiting for yep. quotes on having cabinets and tables built to hold them. So... You need to do a podcast or internet radio program, maybe another Tuesday Topics, featuring your music box. I wonder how the sound would carry over Zoom. Have you tested? Well, I'm going to find out because I just accepted the position of vice president of the Southeast MBSI chapter, and I have to do a tour of one of my two collections at the February or March meeting. So I'm going to have oh. to figure out how to record them and have them sound halfway decently. Excellent. Miss Deborah, thank you so much for your call. Thank you. Ms. Grubb. Hello. Hello. Well, Mr. Craw, I'm going to make one quick comment, and then I want to change gears and ask a two-part question. 
I think that it is so lovely. You didn't think about it. You just did it. But as you were talking about your time in law school and how helpful Pat was to you, and you would say, we did such and such. And it was so beautiful and so affirming. And I hope that Pat has heard that because it really touched my heart. And I just wanted to say that to you. And Thank now you, to Deborah. My, you're welcome. And now to my questions. Um, being kind of an advocacy person, I have a, a yeah. two-part. I have a two. Sorry, Mr. Edwards. Are you going to throw me off the call? Um, no. <laughs> I have. I have a. I have like a two-part question, but I think it will be helpful to people. You know, we have worked a long time on accessible voting, and we know that in all voting, unless it's a major election like this time, that many times voter turnout is low. But I was hoping you could discuss your views on why it is for us when we have so much to gain by voting and what you think we as local organizations might do to help our members feel empowered to vote. And then I thought if Mr. Edwards would allow it, that it would be very interesting from a legal point of view with no dog pony in the show except to express this. What is a civil right? What does it guarantee? What does it do? Because I think a lot of us would really benefit from hearing that. So that, those are my questions. Let me, let me take the first part of the question. I'm not sure that I can easily get involved in an intellectual discussion of the second one in brevity. But um, I, I have always been troubled by the apathy in the disabled community uh, with respect to the usage of accessible voting machines. Um, we, we spent so many thousands of hours, so much manpower, so much energy, uh, so much capital, political capital and otherwise, to achieve accessible voting machines in every polling place to see usage of those machines coming back at four, six, eight, twelve, two, two. It was heart-wrenching. Um, but um, I put it off to um, a fair amount of apathy, a fair amount of social isolation and shut-in mentality amongst a lot of our voters of our disabled community who is unwilling to venture to the polling place to um, to share um, their constitutional right to vote uh, to exercise that right I was hopeful that as much as I believe in the sanctity of voting machines and the right to vote at polling places that as the country has shifted pre-pandemic and post-pandemic to uh, manifesting increased utilization of vote by mail, that we would open the door for so many more of our community 
to be able to participate without having to leave their home. It was disappointing that we couldn't reach all those other voters. And I talked to a number of voters who couldn't give me reasons why, but just didn't do it. Um, I think the time was short, but that doesn't account for the bulk of it, the majority of it. I think it's going to be a hard fight. I think voter education is much of the problem, uh, even with Newsline out there uh, and all of the accessible periodicals and uh, other media for ascertaining the positions of candidates. For whatever reason, um, many blind people just don't feel, one, competent and qualified via education to exercise their constitutional right, Two, that their vote will really make a difference, and I think every vote makes a difference. Uh, or three, um, that they're going to invest the time and energy to do this, um, primarily because they don't see that it's going to give them a benefit. Mm-hmm. Thank you, sir. Now, 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 are you going to purposefully sidestep for a second question? You know... Um, I mean, you you uh, may. It's fine with you. I'm trying to think of how to answer it quickly, Debbie. Um, You know, voting is, and Debbie has always referred to our civil right of voting. Uh, We have freedoms in this country. We have the freedom to speak freely. We have the freedom of assembly. We have the right to vote, which is which is a fundamental democratic principle of this nation. And in the Florida Constitution, for example, the right to vote is something that is so sacrosanct that it's supposed to be private. And that's what we used to motivate or to coerce these legislatures and state elections departments into requiring accessibility in the voting arena for disabled voters. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's required by our constitutions. It's required by our policies and democratic principles. But there's many more in the disability community than in the community at large that just don't choose to exercise their civil right. Mary Tyson. Hi, guys. Oh, my gosh. This has just been wonderful and fascinating, and I love could listen to you tell these stories all day. But um, I, um, a couple of things. First of all, I think you need to do a virtual tour of your music boxes I was thinking about that before um, the conversation went that far. I, I think that would be fascinating. We'll do it. Okay. And secondly, I, I will invite I, him back onto Tuesday Topics to do it if he wants to. Either that we'll or figure out where now. Podcast, yeah. however it works best. Um, I would love to hear them. Love, love, love. Um, okay. Secondly, they're amazing. Another one of my, 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 my real passion 
which what this conversation has turned to is voting. Um, my family is very politically interested. They are not, they don't run for office or uh, whatever, but we've always been very politically um, aware and tried to be informed. Um, at the age of 10, I informed the governor of the state of Florida that I would not be able to vote for him because I was a Democrat. Um, that, uh, my teachers nearly crawled under the desks. Um, so, but um, anyway, I, I was quite a, um, uh, I don't know what the word was, uh, what the proper word is. But An outspoken I, Democrat I, I, at I an was, early age. I was precocious at any rate. Um, and I didn't um, think anything wrong of it. I just, and God bless him, he said to me, well, you know what? That doesn't matter. Just so long as you vote. And I think that is that has stuck with me my whole life. Um, and the first time I used an accessible voting machine, I cried. I was so thrilled to have done it. So all of that work that those who have gone before have done has certainly been yeah. appreciated by me. Um, and I think that I'm also uh, passionate about the vote as a woman because we have not always been able to vote. I really don't understand people that don't vote. I'm trying hard to understand so that I can figure out how to convince them to vote. Um, and so I do know that, for instance, I'm, I'm the president of Halifax Council, and I'll, we, we preach it. It is the gospel at our meetings. They, I bet they are sick of voting a year before the election when it comes to me and Doug Hall. and Right. But I don't care because it's, it's my gospel, and um, at least until, until I'm done. Um, but I, I think that part of the problem in getting um, disabled, whether they be blind or have other disabilities, get, I, I think Jim's right. They, they don't perhaps feel uh, that they have anything to contribute. And I just wish I could reach more of them because I know the ones that I meet hear me whether they want to hear me or not you know so, part, part of the part of the problem both of you is that is that the, the disability community doesn't realize the strength that it has the largest minority in this country the largest minority in this country ladies and gentlemen is the disability community yes and, and I, i'm a member of a disability uh caucus um in volusia county Right, and, um, and and we we're big on those numbers, so we're, yep. we were working out this year. But I just I just really seriously wanted I didn't have any questions, so I'll spare Jim yep. any of that. But I just wanted to thank you guys for doing this, and um, thank you. I, I'm just really impressed by all the stories, and keep up the good work, guys. Well, thank you, uh, Mary, and I'm glad your your experiences voting have been so rewarding. Uh, I think besides apathy. There are a number of, of voters who truly couldn't get themselves to the polling place for one reason or another, and we've got to get this task force to recognize that we need to reach those people with a full and complete accessible vote-by-mail product. Yeah, um, and, 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 and we also need to advertise it and, and educate people on, uh, about its availability in some very untraditional ways if we're going to be effective. Yep. You know, putting an ad in the paper isn't going to cut it. No. Excellent. Mr. Rick? Phone number 1868, please. 
Tom. Hi, my name is Sue Staley. Um, I want to talk about how wonderful uh, the cross were. I met Jim in 1968. He went to, at the orientation center for the blind. He went to school with my husband, I think, for a number of years. My husband was dealing with the end stage of kidney failure. Jim got on a plane the week before the mid-year meeting and came out and surprised him and touched both of our lives. And I'd like to publicly thank Jim and Pat for doing that. Uh, thank, thank you, you so much for your you, call. Sue. And that's, that's excellent. Thank you so much for your call, Sue. You're welcome. D dear friends, wonderful people, oh, Ron was really big in amateur radio. Not amateur radio. Not amateur radio. Um, what do you call that? Uh, radio drama. Um, oh, he was. And huge in that. And, uh, was a very and Ron friend. and Sue used to call my old Tuesday topics on occasion, too. Way back in 2004 to 2009, somewhere in there. Um, Mr. Rick? Yes, Mikey. Mikey. Hello. Shalom, folks. Hey. How, How are come you, you're sir? not eating, Mikey? Oh, uh, well, I am here. My first time calling into Tuesday Topics because I couldn't miss this opportunity to have both of you at the same that's, time. That's right. Um, I, I actually just wanted to chime in and, and you know, I, I, I understand that Jim is a topic of this call, but I, I'd be remiss not to not to put Paul on the same branch here and, and just say thank you. Um, so the, the stories that you've shared, Jim, have really demonstrated the caliber of the individual that you are. I have been I have been blessed by witnessing and experiencing some of that humanity and some of that mentoring, uh, as well as by Paul. And I, I really hope that um, for the folks listening throughout the country um, and maybe throughout the world, um, that, that, that you hear these individuals, that you hear some of these stories and understand the impact that one phone call, one recommendation, one gentle ear, and sometimes a swift kick in the butt can, can mean to somebody. Um, I, I was not born with a visual impairment, um, and I, I, f I was found by both of these individuals um, and, and kind of polished. They did the best they could, so this is the end product, um, but, but it, it, means, it means a lot. It, I think it has also meant a lot to organizations like the Florida Council of the Blind and the American Council of Blind because by way of the avenues and the arteries that you provided to myself. Um, I have found a home in, in consumer advocacy. I have broadened my horizons and realized how important it is um, to be there for others, um, to be there for myself, and to be there for, and to be part of the organization. So thank you and keep up the good work. Uh, thank you, thank Mikey. You. Very kind words. Um, you know, I, I firmly believe, and, and I've said it over and over again, I've talked about climbing climbing to the top of the mountain in my life and continuing to, to strive forward. And as I used to say when I was practicing law, the day I stop learning is the day I die. But the, the other fundamental part of who I am is no man is an, an island, no man stands alone. It takes a village. It takes more than a village. And I didn't get where I, where I am today 
by standing alone, uh, but only because uh, I had a tremendous amount of opportunity, of encouragement, of help, of love and support, uh, my family, my friends, my mentees, my coworkers, uh, my clients, uh, and on and on it goes. I'm mean, not to leave anyone out. Um, my law clerks, uh, just a, a on, an on list of, of people that have been there. And you, you don't do it by yourself. Um, but to receive, you have to give. Yep. And, and that's the important part is it's a two-way street. And I've tried to give, and uh, I've definitely received way more than I've given. Now, we've been a little remiss, actually, because we talked about Brian being born. But you have two children, I think, and some grandchildren. Tell us about those. I'd love to tell you about my children <laughs> and grandchildren. Um, Brian was born in 1979. He and his wife are both lawyers. They have a private practice in Winter Park, Florida. Uh, they are chips off the old block. They've done some nice legal work for FCB to help them out a couple times. Um, Dad's urging without a wink, but very happily, uh, always without a bill. Uh, they're very generous. It's a lot of real estate and other kinds of things that come in the door. They have two children. Our grandson, Jackson, is the techno wizard. He was here this afternoon. He got a keyboard, wireless keyboard, a uh, Alexa device, and my iPhone programmed for another device in the two hours that he was here. <laughs> so he's a genius. He's fabulous. His sister, um, Sawyer Grace, is 11. Uh, she's a superstar. She's just completed competing in a um, soccer championship. My daughter is two years younger than him, not my daughter, Debbie Grubb. You can hit me for that. Our daughter very beautiful Jennifer she's an incredibly uh, giving caring child uh, she's gotten very involved and committed to helping at FCB uh, she was at the last mid-year meeting which I was not at uh, she is uh, involved in, was involved in hospitality management she's been a stay-at-home mom and is just getting back into the workforce selling uh, and distributing and piloting a new company in the marketing of um, um, PPE materials. Uh -huh. And um, our son-in-law, David, is a programmer, web design, graphic designer, web designer for Disney. Unfortunately, he's been caught in a very lengthy furlough thanks to COVID. Uh, but he's been busy homeschooling and working with Rebecca. And all three of our grandchildren are very precocious. They're very outgoing. Rebecca is an incredibly gifted child, as are the other two. She's very giving. She's a very sweet girl. And the reason we have a home in Winter Garden, Florida, by Orlando, is so we can spend more time with them. And we do roller skate back and forth up until COVID uh, once or twice a month. Uh, to go to their um, baseball games, soccer games, softball games, volleyball games, basketball games, uh, school events. Um, 
and it's what life is all about, and it's really makes it so valuable. Uh, I, I, I guess that's what I, I, I really am fortunate about. My life has been rounded in so many different ways. Uh, it's it's full uh, from my advocacy work and blindness, from my um, hobby and music boxes to my involvement with my family to my wonderfully successful, uh, accomplished legal career, uh, I can only say that I've been truly blessed. Yep. Uh, Grandpa Jim used to call and read bedtime stories to his grandchildren when they were younger, even if he was in Miami and they were in Orlando. My kids were all raised on the National Braille Press's Braille Book Club. I was an early subscriber to that book club when it first pioneered. Brian was just two or three. I, if we look back, I'll bet it came out in 82 or 83. Yeah. And um, he uh, told one of our babysitters that she wasn't reading right when she was trying to read him a bedtime story. She put, He picked up her hand and put it on the book and said, nice. no, read. Um, but I did, uh, and, and all three of the grandchildren absolutely love to read. They're avid readers, and I do believe that we had a significant role in making their love and appreciation of books. Um, I, I think that's right. Absolutely. Mr. Rick? Yes, Sheila Young, please. Sheila oh, Young. goodness. Good evening, um, I don't know where to start. Jim Crott has been instrumental. Why in the hell did you make me president? <laughs> anyway. For those people um, in other parts of the country, Sheila is president of the Florida Council of the Blind. And, and Jim was. And doing a mighty good job of it. And, and Jim was the, was the previous president. But he anyway. turned out. He turned out he couldn't he couldn't run again. No, and but, he uh, made me run. But anyway, and, and and he damn near didn't want to make me one. So. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> I've already done that. <laughs> I, I just want to say that Jim has been so instrumental in all of our advocacy for voting by mail, and you really have made it happen in Florida. So I want to say thank you for that. Um, I love you, your family, your whole goodness. Jen is just beyond belief. So he is, you know, Jen is such an asset to FCB and you do such an awesome job in every way that you serve the community. So thank you, Jim. He's doing a job I wouldn't do. He's treasurer of the Braille Revival League of Florida, so I'm happy that that's the case. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thank you, so. Miss Sheila. Thank you, Sheila. Let me just take this opportunity to say one of the, the best things that I did during my term of as president of the Florida Council of the Blind was to find an able, competent, committed, dedicated, hardworking successor. And I yeah. think we found the best one we could find. Sheila um, was cer is certainly that. With respect to the voting, um, you know, uh, there were five of us that were involved in as plaintiffs in that lawsuit that we filed this summer. 
it was a tremendous amount of work. Um, we did it. Uh, I'm very proud of us for doing it. I'm proud of having the support of both the Florida Council of the Blind and ACB was also involved in it. And it was truly a team effort and a tremendous lot of, of work. I wish we had had a judge that would have given us accessible voting in 67 counties in November. But truthfully, I don't think that judging from what we went through to get the five counties up and running um, between August and November, we could have successfully done it in the remaining 62 counties. So it was meant to work out the way it worked out. I'm excited about the upcoming and task I think, force. And I think it depended a lot, Jim, on on the quality of the, the supervisors of elections in counties because, I mean, we, we certainly heard reports of, of a couple of counties at least where, where, where the accessible vote by mail worked beautifully and where, where people loved it. The, um, the counties that agreed to do it and did it were counties that wanted to do it. And they yep. all worked extremely hard. The supervisors all were extremely committed and dedicated. Um, they couldn't have worked harder to make it happen. They couldn't have cared more about it. Uh, I communicated uh, with the county that I was involved with down here. There was ongoing communication with the counties in central Florida. Um, and um, I, I, the, the supervisors that did it, weren't twisted they did right. it because they wanted to do it but but when it's all said and done they only really had what 10 10 weeks maybe from from the time it was authorized until election yep yeah more or less that's, that's not a lot not, of time. not a lot of time not not when yeah. it took the the state two years to certify the voting system yeah. to begin with yeah if there's lots of blame we can share around mr rick yeah, I think we got another member here of the FCB Jim Crot fan club. Uh, yeah. Katie Lear, please. Oh, Yay! Yeah. Yay, Jim! <laughs> well, I'm calling to switch gears a little bit. First of all, I've, I've always been impressed with the fact that you're such an advocate and you just dig right in there and you get her done. But I primarily called to thank you for hiring me. <laughs> um, I was sitting you know, at... I was sitting at the, um, I had retired from the state, and I was sitting at the next FCB meeting convention, and our dear Sally was retiring, and Jim was doing an absolutely excellent job in running the meeting, and I was listening, but I was also looking at the bulletin, and they were looking for an administrative assistant, and I said to Mark, I think I'd really like to go to work for that man. I don't know anything about him, but he's wonderful, and I think we would do well, so I applied, and a committee interviewed me. And Jim called and said, well, I don't know you. I don't know anything about you, but I'm going to follow the recommendations of my committee. <laughs> and I got the job. And I, Jim, I have to say, you were a wonderful boss. You gave me the tools I needed to learn. I didn't know a lot of about the, the history of FCB. You made sure, you and Sally made sure I learned what I needed to know. And you gave me the tools I needed to do my job. So thank you, sir, very much. Wow, I'm touched. Thank you very much, Katie. Uh, your your gain was 15 times our gain. Uh, we we have never looked back. We have only looked forward. Katie uh, could go to work for any state in this country 
and do a phenomenal job, but the problem is she's not going anywhere because we're not letting her go anywhere. <laughs> she's phenomenal any, and any she's a real asset. Country. Yeah, she has been, and 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 it's a it's a good job that that you saw that you saw through all of the other stuff, Mister Crot, to see the real Katie. <laughs> <laughs> And she yes, runs, there are runs a good she runs a good state convention too. She did, she did a great job. She does. Yeah. And we're gonna do it again. Miss Katie, thank you so much thank for your you call. So much, we are gonna do it again. Hybrid. Thank you, Katie. On. Bye guys. Cassandra, please. Bye. Oh my gosh. Cassandra. Goodness. Hi. So first of all, like Mikey, um, I know this call is about Jim, but I'm gonna tell you the two people on this call today definitely have impacted my life in a good way. And so I want to thank you both, first of all, for that. Um, Paul pushed me to be a board because I didn't want to be on nobody board. I was afraid. And, you know, he talked me into that. And I thank you for that because I think that kind of made me grow. So I thank you for that. Yeah. Um, You're welcome. But for you, Jim, and, and you still do, um, you are never too far or never too busy um, to, to talk to someone who just needs to vent or frustrated. And I just want to tell you that I appreciate you for that. Um, and my question to you is, if you had to, because my phone went dead, so I don't know if you answered this question or not. So I apologize if I'm asking a question that you already answered. But I'm thinking about all the things that I heard um, who would you say is going to be your, your most, um, your, be your best mentor, the person that, you know, you're, you're right at, you know, like everybody has the most person who pushed them to be, and I think I heard it, but I'm not sure. But, um, who just, who, who just said, you know what, yeah. if you don't do this, you know. Yep. So who is your mentor in chief? That's really tough. Um, that that is very very difficult. Um, uh, you know, I, I was asked what I was most thankful for in a group of people last week uh, at one of our committee meetings, and uh, I, I was about the seventh one to go. And I said, my wife. And I thought, why didn't anybody say their their partner? And then two people jumped on after me and said that. But I said, I really owe so much to my wife. Uh, I, I truly do. Uh, I've mentioned Stuart Simon, the gentleman who really mm -hmm. took a huge chance in life and decided that he was going to gamble. What I didn't explain to you all was that at that time to be hired as an assistant county attorney, you had to come to an interview in the office and be voted yes on by 19 of 19 lawyers. If one person or two people had reservations, you didn't get hired. I bypassed that entire process. Um, the assistant county attorney, when he called me the next day, said, you know, we love Stuart very much, but he's a cream puff. You can call Stuart uh -huh. Simon anything you want to call him, but he gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. Yep. His son-in-law, I've also mentioned, was my mentor in the office, was always somebody I looked up to and emulated 
and, and tried to please, a very positive influence in my life. And then finally, I guess the story wouldn't be complete if I didn't thank the person that really has motivated me far and directed me, but for the Avia and the Abla groups in ACB, pushed me into uh, leadership roles in FCB and into leadership um, roles, development, and growth in uh, ACB, and that's uh, Mr. Paul Edwards. Awesome. Wow. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, and Cassandra, thank you for your call. Thank you. This was really good. You, you saw the way I answered your question, Cassandra. I, I took one person and made it five. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what lawyers do, so it's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Jesse, thank you so much. I think coming you, out Paul. of this, guys, we're going to have a new community call called This Is Your Life. That's right. Dem, 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 dem. <laughs> that used to be fun. I want to try and sneak in. It's Debbie. Um, I'm, Debbie, go. I am, I'm multitasking, trying to do my other show at the same time, but I just wanted to come in and say that, gosh, Jim, you know, I know we talked just a few days ago, and it was, it was like we never stopped. You know, we don't talk that often, but when we do, it's good, and I'm hearing that you do that for a lot of people. And I remember when we first, I think we met, I know we met when Gail was still here, but there was some way that when she left, there was a way that it felt like we were even more connected. And some of the times that we spent just having a cup of coffee or being on the phone or, or just being at conventions and, and talking with your wife as well about cats, because I know you both love cats. And I, there's so many different things where it's always been that we could just pick up wherever we are. There was never any awkwardness of, oh gosh, it's been forever. It's still always good. And I remember doing a show where you spoke from the president role that you were in and all that you were doing for Florida. And then saying to me off record, well, I'm doing that, but you know, I still have a life. And that's, mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that makes you so special to so many is because you are living your life you're about your life and so you're able to be with all of us and where we are in our lives and so that's just really special thank you debbie let me just tell you in response to and very much appreciate your comments uh, i am kind of crazy um six months ago i asked my daughter to look up a gentleman that i went to eighth grade with that I hadn't talked to since I graduated from grammar school. He was a year behind me. And to look for a gentleman that was in a speech competition with me my junior year of high school, uh, and another gentleman. And I've reconnected with all three of them and established wonderful relationships. And it's, it's phenomenal. And one of them is a German clockmaker, uh, a.k.a. music boxes, uh, that probably had a little bit to do with my love for old clocks and music boxes way back then by sowing a couple of interesting seeds. Oh, that's nice. Excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Miss Deborah. Mr. Rick? Ralph. Mr. Ralph. Right, dear. Great uh, show this evening.
interesting life, Jim. I love to hear you, you when sir. you when you talk on these boards. I think uh, you're deliberate and uh, thoughtful when you make your comments. And uh, Mr. Edwards, you're a great mentor, and I appreciate your friendship. Now, I wanted to change uh, uh, questions somewhat. When you went to camp and you went horseback riding, did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved horseback riding. Um, I took horseback riding lessons as a, as a youngster. Um, there was a lady that had a riding academy, and she wanted a, a, a couple of blind kids to, to ride. We went every day, every Saturday for an hour or an hour and a half and learned to saddle the horses and groom them and, and ride them. My horse's name was Cricket, and I was convinced I was going to adopt Cricket and bring her into my backyard. Um, I, I loved horseback riding. One of my favorite hunting trips, I used to go deer hunting with my dad, was a horse trip where we packed in uh, in the northern California <clears throat> Eagle River country <clears throat> with an Indian guide, and everybody hated the trip because there were no deer and it was hotter than hell, and I absolutely loved the trip. We spent two days on horses. I got a terrible case of some type of saddle sore that was awful, uh, but I had a wonderful time, and... Uh, Thoroughly enjoyed my riding days. Uh, Enchanted Hills did not have horses. I think they did a couple of years. Uh, they have a big barn that they had constructed, which I don't know if it survived or not. I don't think it did. Um, it's it's sure amazing how how parallel your your life and mine is. When I was um, when I was eight, I was going to school in Vancouver, and I actually won a third place ribbon at the Vancouver International Horse Show for show jumping. <laughs> wow. Excellent. Uh, okay. And, um, and then at the age of 13, one of my fondest memories was a three-day um, uh, trail ride where, where we were bringing all the horses back from Banff, Alberta, to, to Calgary. And so a bunch of us young kids got to ride them back. It was great Excellent. fun. And um, I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna ask him about um, a, a, about uh, BRL, Mister Rell. No, I was. I was interested in, uh, in the uh, in the horseback riding because I I was. I've been able to uh, you know ride some as well. And I love it as well. Yeah, I, I love my horseback riding at camp. What I also liked was rowing and canoeing um, <clears throat> on the lake. Uh, I won a rowing championship for the camp one year. And when I was at Wapanaki in Vermont, we learned how to gunnel. And it's amazing the number of canoe riders that are polished canoers that I have talked to. They're, they're very committed uh, canoers over the years. And I tell them about gunneling, and they have no idea what it is or how to, how to do it. And one stands on the bow, and one stands on the stern, and they bounce up and down uh, and basically push the canoe across the water and Indians cool have to use it as a, a maneuver wow. to silently move their canoes through the water. Ah, I think that's wow, pretty amazing. Okay. I, 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 I would be about as competent in a canoe as, uh, as, 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 as I would be flying a, a jet plane. So, well, I've done both. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The last time I was in a canoe, my sister, 
and my brother-in-law and I stopped at a jet ski place and ended up on three jet skis. And my sister said, well, I'll follow behind you and yell directions. And I said, uh-huh. okay. And I took off on my jet ski and went five minutes, ten minutes. And all of a sudden I said, I wonder why she's not saying anything to me. So I put on the brakes and slowed down the throttle. And she says, what the heck have you been doing? I've been screaming my head off. You almost <laughs> hit three people. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, thanks be to God, I didn't. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank wow. you, Mr. Ralph. <laughs> All right. Mr. Rick. Yeah, Rachel Schroeder, please. Rachel from Illinois. Hi, I'm actually in Florida right now. Are you? I am. Uh, Delaney, wait a minute, baby. <laughs> um, I'm going to be kind of quick because it's not going to be long before I'm interrupted again. But mm-hmm. um, there's probably not a whole lot. I could add that hasn't already been said, but I wanted to at least add my name to the long list of people who are uh, very blessed to call both of you mentors and uh, most importantly, friends, um, yeah. because uh, I was able to start off an FCB with both of you and a lot of uh, resolutions meetings and uh, yep. yeah. <laughs> and. Um, Constitution and bylaws committee meetings. Uh, I remember Jim and I talking about braille displays and all that. And uh, you know, I've I've personally been able to spend time with both of you um, from from hanging out at each of your houses and at yours, Jim, checking out music boxes and going to baseball games together and hanging out with you, uh, just chatting on the porch, uh, listening to music, Paul. So I'm very uh, blessed to to be able to have a friendship with both of you and, and certainly you guys have both taught me a lot about, you know, just uh, the whole advocacy thing and, and given me a, a good start. You're an inspiration to us all. You've come a long way. Illinois is blessed to have you. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm not in winter garden so we can finally get together. Oh, um, are you there for Christmas at all? <laughs> I, have, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, uh, we will work it out. We'll work it out. All right. But you, you, but you learned it. You learned it good, sister. And, uh, and well, thank you. Yeah, you made us proud, Rachel. Thank yes, you. you have. You guys, you guys are awesome friends, and and I can't uh, echo what other people have said enough. So I just had to add my name to it, though. Thank you, Miss Rach. Thank you. Love you both. Give Delaney a hug for us. Say, you want to say hi, Delaney? Say hi. No. Hi, Delaney. Hi. They're saying hello. Hi. Hi, Delaney. <laughs> She's hungry. She wants Oreos. <laughs> yes. right, Delaney is, is five now? She's six now. Wow. She's getting old, Uncle Jim. Uh-oh. <laughs> We're all yeah, getting but... old. Yeah. Oh, thanks, I know. Rach. All right. Thanks. Yep. All right. Mr. Jim. Um, I guess... I guess I should ask you before I let you go, as, there, as kind of your final question, do you have any any specific plans for the future? Are there some things that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? You know, my life is full. My life is rich. Uh, I've done so much. I've been so many places. I do miss traveling with COVID. Yeah. Um, but my idea of traveling is spending time with the people that I care about, um, that that matter. Uh, I have five friends in England that I want to go back and see and a couple friends in Germany that I really want to go back and see. And I look forward to being able to get back to that. 
if I had anything that I would put on the wish list, uh, I still would like to take a cruise through the Panama Canal. Um, I'm not sure that it will happen, um, but it's it stays high in the in the dream category. And there's some other things like that that I I would would like to do. But my life is full and rich, and uh, I don't have uh, a lot of uh, of alternatives to where I am right now that I would rather be chasing. Mm-hmm. Do you feel comfortable sharing your email address with folks in case they'd like to get in touch with you? Absolutely. <clears throat> my email address is my name, James, middle initial K, last name K-R-A-C-H-T, as in Tom, at gmail.com. That's James K. Crot at gmail.com. Excellent. Mr. Crot, it has been truly a joy uh, to, uh, to get the opportunity to spend some time with you and to find out more about someone who I think everybody who's listened to this program will recognize as a person who's accomplished immense amounts with his life. Uh, you go, sir. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful opportunity. I thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity. I hope everyone on the call and you, Paul, all have a wonderful Thanksgiving, as well as you, Mr. Morin. Thank Thank you, you, sir. Thank you, Jim. Next week, um, I think we're going to be having an author who's going to be talking about a book that I've had the opportunity to preview. And I'll get a note out tomorrow. It's a lady who lived part of her life in Vietnam and then moved to the United States. I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion and an opportunity for us to learn a tremendous amount more about what it's like to be a part of a foreign country and then have to adjust to ours. So I hope you'll join us next week on Tuesday Topics. And in the meantime, thanks Thanks to Rick and thanks to our streamer and everyone. Good night.